We are joined today by Linda Martindale, the head boys basketball coach at Lincoln Sudbury High School, uh, who has a really, uh, I think, remarkable uh, career story and arc as a player and as a coach and has the uh, distinction of being one of the few uh, female head coaches of a boys uh, high school basketball team and a very competitive one at that. So thank you for joining us, Linda. Thank you for having me. So I'm, what would you just say kind of to open about your career arc in, in the sport and your relationship with the sport? You're a player, you become a coach. Like, what would you say about your playing career? Did you always know you wanted to be a coach? or? Yeah, I think I did. I mean, I, I feel like some people are sort of born coaches, and I was coaching when I was really young. So it probably started with just coaching my next-door neighbor so she could make the basketball team at the high school. Uh, my dad was a great coach, so watching him coach, he coached football and baseball. So I think it was probably always in my blood, and being a player was what I you know initially did, and after I stopped playing, I wanted to stay in the game, so to speak. So that's how it kind of evolved. What did you, you mentioned that your, your father was a coach. What was it about his coaching style that you emulate right now, or do you not? I think I probably do emulate him for sure. Um, he was passionate, um, loved the kids that he coached. Um, after he passed away, so many of the young men that he coached came back to honor him, and I always appreciated the fact that he had long-term relationships with all of the guys that he coached. So there was a connection. This wasn't just about the X's and O's. These kids, young men, actually felt a connection with your dad. 100%, yeah, 100%. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's interesting, but Sam and I, throughout our podcast so far, have been stressing the importance of connection with the athlete. You know, and, and I think in our AAU episode, we were speaking about the lack of connection. Yeah, between a lot of AAU coaches right. and players. And the poor communication. Oh, my goodness, man. By the way, I, I was clued in by one of our mutual connects to uh, just, I'm, I'm just at a loss for some of the AAU stuff. Coaches that were, you told me about you two taking selfies during games, and I saw some of those same coaches are like with their players after the game at a bar with like women taking selfies with all of them and it's like these are like you know not 18 year olds that they're coaching and taking out and uh, I just I'm, I'm at a loss for that's the kind of life lessons that you're imparting on your players right now yeah I agree I mean I've, I've had more kids come into the gym and tell me things that coaches have said to them that have knocked them over and to me the C word being coach is the word to build up. Yeah. And I can't tell you the number of times that kids come in and say, my coach insulted me. My coach knocked me down. My, you know, you've forgotten. You've forgotten your job because your job is to build up. And um, I'm not sure if every coach is doing that or if every coach has that as a goal. But to me, that sort of emulates your job. And that is you know, build kids up to a place where they can maximize their performance, bottom line. Did you, like, growing up, were there coaches that left laft, lasting impressions on you, either good or bad, that have influenced you to this day on the way that you coach? It could be good, bad, something that has been, that was imparted on you that impacts you to this day. I would say that I was, I'm a natural quitter, 
And I know people don't really believe that when I say that, but I really, really believe that it's my natural inclination to quit. So if the going gets tough, I want to find a way out. If the game is tight, I want to find a way to quit. Um, And my dad as a coach was a big don't quit. His whole life was don't quit, don't quit. So I've become a coach that teaches kids to, you know, how to not quit because I'm so naturally a quitter, if that makes sense. Um, I recognize quitters when I see them and I make it my goal as a coach to find a way to get them to persevere. And coaches did that for me, found a way, you know, when I was reluctant to like dig in and fight harder, found a way to push me through it. And so now as a coach, that's the challenge is what do you do when the going gets tough? A a good coach will find a way to push you over the wall and get you to the other side. So that's probably the biggest thing for me, you know, in looking back is somebody found a way to get me to not quit. Wow. So quitting. Um. We're talking resilience, right? Yeah. How to respond. You know, what is your response ability? You know, what what is your ability to respond from an adverse situation? Yeah. So I'm sure that being a high school coach, and this is not a leading question, you tell me how you feel about it, that you see, I would imagine that you would see more adversity in the kids than the ability to actually fight through something. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on, you know, there's some kids who are naturally resilient or they've faced things in their life leading up to high school basketball that gives them a resilience that, um, you know, I really appreciate. And I have I have an award that I give out and it's in, you know, in the name of my dad and it's for the kid who just never quit. I admire kids who don't quit, but I feel like I recognize that. And so as a coach, it's it's my goal to get kids to be super uncomfortable and find a way through. So I'm, I'm sitting here now, and this is, okay, Sam, this is a different Linda, all right? Mm-hmm. When I, normally when I'm around Linda, I see her on a basketball court, all right? The first time I saw you, you were coaching Newton North, Newton North uh, girls. That's right. And the only thing I saw was energy. I saw energy, I saw passion, you know, wonderful X's and O's. But it was the connection yeah. with her team that made me notice, okay, that's a good coach. Yeah. All right. Now, I did not see quitter. All right. <laughs> so I'm not sure where this interview is yeah. going. But <laughs> what I saw was a person who was not willing to back down. I still see that in her. Even you know, in, in the camps I get a chance to work I, with you with. I want to know what, what I can do to bottle that not quitting with my son. Jack, because my son, he's five. He's going to be six this summer, so it's young. But um, He's talented at so many things, but he just all of a sudden will not want to, like, do them anymore. Like, and it's uh, with the band, with the with the BU and the Northeastern pep bands, when he was playing, he was playing a trumpet at three and a half, a real trumpet with wow. the pep band. And then COVID hit, and so he wasn't able to do it for a year and a half, and he doesn't want to do it now. And it was, like, this natural, incredible talent. And how do I get him to not just quit that or he's doing karate he's doing really well at it but then he was sick the family was sick he got sick again his brother was sick so like he missed several weeks of it now he's like yeah i don't know i don't i don't want to go do karate it's boring it's boring he says everything's boring and i'm like i don't want i don't want to be the parent that just like forces their kid into something because we talked about how much burnout i see from kids later on when the parent like the parent can't want it more than the kid at some point it's like 
if you if you want this thing for your kids more than your kids want it, um, it's not going to work. But like I also, I don't want to just be like, okay, we'll find something new every time because it's like, you know, he's he's got these interests at a young age and. So it's it's a, it's a hard hard. Yeah, thing I would to say out. like just letting him know that he's got to see it through to this point. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was always like, well, you have to see it through to the end. Yeah. And then you can talk about. Then it's not quitting. It's you know finishing. doing something okay. else and finishing and and that was a big thing for me because clearly quitting is about fear. You know, yeah. fear of failure for sure. For me, it was the fear of failure. I quit because I was afraid that I was going to lose. Or I was, you know, going to fail. And once I realized that quitting became something I couldn't do, then I sort of overcame the discomfort. And you and I talk all the time about being uncomfortable. And now that I'm coaching kids in situations, I make them purposefully uncomfortable so they can get through it. I know you do the same thing. Yeah. Right? Yes. You teach them how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Exactly. And you and for me, sometimes I watch it makes me uncomfortable to watch someone uncomfortable. And I force myself to to know if they can get through the other side. There's so much value in that. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother used to. uh, And again, this is me without without the benefit of having a father in the house. No, I grew up with my grandmother, who was a strong individual, as we've spoken of before. And uh, she used to tell me. It's hard, but it's fair. It's hard, but it's fair. Or the more you cry, the less you pee. Right? <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what that meant, but it was you don't have the right to give up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard with the kids. Do you find yourself, uh, and a lot of times, Sam and I have spoken, and we've said that parents are often the problem. Because the kids you get, their parents may have been athletes. Do they call you? And say, well, Linda, my, my son should be playing more or my daughter should be playing more. I mean, do you respond to those those parents? I have a couple of rules over the years because I have some, you know, really extensive parent stories, honestly, like yeah. that are remarkable. Um, but I've come to a place now where I set really significant boundaries so that I can't be put into situations where, you know, I have to make decisions on the fly. So one of them is... I have no problem discussing your kid. I don't discuss other people's other kids. kids. That's a good rule. Yeah. That's a big one because people say, you know, Johnny's better than Sammy and blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't want to talk about Sammy. Let's talk about Johnny. Yeah. Um, I've gotten pretty good at saying, I don't think Johnny's good enough, and here's why. And it used to make me uncomfortable to do that. But parents want to know, yeah. and they want to know the truth. And I think, you know, being truthful is fine. I also don't talk to anybody um, within 24 hours after a game. So it sense. gives everybody 24 hours to reflect. Um, I'm a parent of four kids, all of them athletes, all of them competitive, and all of them at different ranges of their competitiveness. So I have a son who didn't play, and I remember losing my mind over it and wanting to know from the coach immediately why he didn't play. And it was 10 minutes after the game. It was not a good time, you know. So waiting is good. Yeah. Waiting is good. And then having a coach be really honest and telling me my kid is not good enough and here's why, I appreciated that. I had something to work with. Yeah. Something to work with. So I, I agree with you too, Bobby. Like, you don't have the right to play 
on a competitive team, you earn it. And if parents respect that, they'll find a way to get their kids to be better or their kids will do something else. Yeah. How do you, uh, this is kind of a, in more of your kind of coaching opinion, how do you handle evaluating players? And I mean, at the varsity level, you're getting them for the most part when they're either, they're at least in the midst of going through puberty uh, or the if you have an underclassman that's a good enough to be on the varsity, they, they've probably matured early. They're athletically very inclined. But how do you handle, with a program that you run, evaluating kids? Um, because they, they, I think something that so many coaches and kids and parents don't get is they mature at such different rates. And I remember I heard... Um, might have been Bill Bradley or it was someone else. Uh, I don't think it was Bill Bradley, but it was someone else who was had been an athlete and now he is you know works as a uh, in some sort of high up position. Was talking about how there is basically no nothing projectable on a kid's athletic ceiling from before he hits puberty. That because of the rates that people mature at, that there is that you know you can look some at family history, but there's very little that is projectable on how athletic a kid is pre-puberty versus post-puberty and I always remember I had a player for me because I was a JV coach uh, in baseball for several years um, and I had a player for me who I adored and he was a kid who he was very young for his grade which doesn't help um, as a freshman a sophomore a junior he was JV all those years and he was like you know five two as a sophomore like five six as a junior he was very like slow footed, slow everything, and it was clear he had not, his muscles had not gone through that puberty transformation. His dad was a moose, was like six foot four, had been a two sport athlete in college. And the varsity coach was like, oh yeah, you know, like all along it was that they talked about this kid, Will. I'll use his real name because I adore this kid, um, and I still stay in touch with him to this day. He's been to he's been to both my weddings. Shout um, out to Will. Shout out to Will. <laughs> um, he. Uh, he just was a coach's dream, and coaches all talk about, oh, he's got such a great attitude, he works so hard, but he's just never going to be athletic enough or big enough, but we keep him around because he's a great kid. I loved mm-hmm. having him on the JV. He soaked up everything, listened to everything. He came back his senior year. He comes in. He's six foot three. Cool. He's throwing. He's hitting 90 miles an hour off the mound, and he's dropping absolute missiles like <laughs> at the plate. He's just hitting bombs. And it, what drove me, what was so upsetting to me was that and he had worked every summer with me just worked his butt off Mm -hmm. but I I played no role in him growing that much and maturing that much (laughs) but it showed that he was very dedicated to the craft in a way that other athletes weren't and the the varsity coach still looked at him through the lens of who he was and so he made the varsity but he never played they were like oh well you know I don't know Will is just he's just not quite he's just not quite athletic enough or big enough and I'm like not big enough the kid's Six four. He's like the tallest kid on the team, and when he's batting left-handed, he's hitting balls out into the parking lot. And the fact that a coach that they make these player evaluations when kids are so young, and then can't adjust them as kids hit puberty. And Will actually, so he basically had no baseball resume, so to speak, because he played a couple of varsity innings in garbage time. Then he worked out with me that whole summer again. He went and he made his college team the next year. Mm-hmm. So made, made a college team after basically not being given a chance in high school. Yeah, so what do you make of it? It's hard to imagine that a coach would miss it. Yeah. I mean, I think we take chances. For sure we do. Like, 
you take a chance on a kid because you see something yeah. that you hope is going to develop. Um, but you're right. I mean, sometimes we we take a chance and it doesn't work out. And it's super unfortunate. I've taken kids young because I thought that they were going to yeah. be able to rise up to the occasion. And then they didn't. And it's super unfortunate. Um, and I've missed kids. And they come back the next year and I cut them and they come back the next year. And I'm like, wow, I miss that. So I think most coaches or hopefully most coaches take a chance where they think it's going to you know, it's going to come to fruition. But and I think the the thing for me is just hoping that coaches don't get locked onto one track where they won't. I feel like you need to be constantly evaluating your players every I agree. year. And that they're looking through this kid through the lens of who he was before he, he hit puberty late and not reevaluating him that, this, that senior year. Because, well, he hasn't played for three years. But it's like he shows up senior. He literally is a different person. He's so you, he's twice as big as he was, and he's running yeah, faster. Yeah. And so you've got two sides harder. to this, yeah. right? So the side of the player is that puberty is always the great equalizer. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. what we're establishing yeah. right now. Then, and I think this is the this is one of the aspects that coaches, we as coaches, never want to look at that we may get it wrong. Yeah. That we don't have all the answers. So there are levels to coaching. If you've never coached an athlete like that. Like you said, the kid was six three, six four, or whatever yeah. it was, and throw, throw, throwing almost ninety. Yeah, he was hitting ninety his senior year. It was great. You may not understand how to coach that. Yeah. And if you have a staff, look, your staff is learning from you. They don't know how to coach him, so the kid misses out, right? Maybe yeah, the kid's and, better off somewhere. It's, yeah, I, I, it's feel, I think he would have been better off if he had transferred to a school that didn't know him from from any didn't know any of his past so they were evaluating him with a totally fresh set of I think eyes that, yeah and i think that's the same with jobs yeah i mean you bring mm -hmm. somebody into a job they're going to hit a ceiling because i just don't see the admin becoming the ceo so eventually they have to change companies <laughs> right. yeah right. but i i have an interesting question for you guys what do we owe kids who we i'll give you an example so you take a kid on varsity because you think that they're going to rise up mm -hmm. and then they don't and they come back the next year I've seen coaches not cut them yeah. after they took them, and I feel a responsibility. It was my mistake. I didn't see the kid rise up. So now do I cut the kid after they – does that make sense? I think so, that's a really tough question to it's ask. It's a tough because one. Because it's your decision, and you set the kid up, and maybe you, you put him in over his head when you – Exactly. Um, we're not expect you know you were expecting him to be different, and maybe he did his abs – or she did their absolute best – and they just weren't ready for it. And then, That's right. Yeah, so that is a really tough one because now you've set their expectations at a certain place. And year two, if they're ready to contribute in some way at the varsity level, yeah, I, I totally I get keeping. I think most coaches just keep the kid period. It's like and I, I feel period, responsible, for yeah. sure. I feel like I need to keep them. The thing that I do have a tendency to do now because I've actually had players – I had a freshman point guard that I took varsity. She went on to be one of the best players I ever coached. She, um, she played at Florida State. Then she just finished at Rutgers. And now she's, I can't remember where she is. She's going to do another year. She's an incredible okay. player. Behind her, I took a freshman point guard to play behind her. And she was over her head, did not get enough playing time. By her sophomore year, she was so disenchanted with the game because she didn't get to play. She shouldn't have been put on varsity. I couldn't correct it. Yeah. Mm. She just wasn't, she didn't want to play anymore. So it was like, those were mistakes. One, it 
landed and went really well. Yeah, it's, One, it's, with the young kids, it's really tough because what I will see a lot of, and I'm not, this isn't I saying you, but I'm saying what I've seen a lot of in my life as a player and as a coach is that I feel like a lot of varsity coaches, and maybe I think it's even more so on the boys' side of things because I think boys' coaches who tend to be wrapped up in the old school, old boys' club mentality of like, oh, talent, you just got to take a talent. I think I see a, a lot, maybe even more there than with girls' sports of a young freshman who's got a reputation, maybe they're showing some promise, is up on the varsity immediately. And there's all these expectations with that that come with that. Maybe they're being thrown into a, like a regular playing role. Um, that, that it's like almost like don't they're not erring on the side of caution. They're not erring on the side of it's a young kid, very early on in his career, impressionable too. So what what is his ego response to being a freshman on the varsity when all the other freshmen are on the freshman or JV? And the, it's like, when in doubt, let's take him on the varsity, as opposed to when in doubt, let's have him play freshman or JV 100%. ball and develop. 100% and, agree. And, and to me, more often than not, that is doesn't work out, I think. I agree. Um, and, and by the way, basketball is a sport that size matters. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we don't see it as much for girls. So we see, you know, girls could be fully developed as freshmen. Yeah. Um, we see boys... Um, it's an issue. And so for me, a freshman boy, if he does not have the size to play with an 18-year-old yeah. senior, mm-hmm. he is going to get beaten up yep. in a way that is not going to help him develop. So I think on the girls' side, I would be more likely, you know, maturity for girls, the ability to handle it for girls is an issue. For boys, it's really the size. Yeah, and, and I, I I didn't even think about that. But, yeah, but the, but the maturity rates, girls do physically mature sooner than boys they reach their their top height uh for the most part several years before boys do as far as they're growing and all that um so that physically for a girl a freshman girl should be more physically ready to play varsity than a freshman boy but yet i feel like i see it with all these boys that have talent uh they they get brought up in different sports really early and every once in a while you'll have it you know you do have some kids that works out for your varsity starter or contributor or whatever does well goes on to college but I feel like it sets up so many kids for a lot of pitfalls and you know one because physically suddenly you are the smallest unless you are an absolute freak of nature which is like one in a million Um, even if you are athletic and big for a freshman probably your whole life up until then because you're playing in age groups exactly you're used to relying on just bigging people like mm-hmm. i'm bigger than you i'm faster than you i'm stronger than you i can use that and suddenly those skills are not going to immediately translate when you're a freshman going up against seniors you can't just get big on people um and so it's you have a coach that can teach you to deal with that kind of ego check right there and help you develop new skills you might need and then there's just also the ego of the number of kids that i saw get called up uh, really early as freshmen to the varsity and the ego they get that lasts beyond their playing career because if they've got this ego about, oh, yeah, I'm a big shot, and they carry themselves like that throughout high school. And then that carries over once your, your, your playing time in a small town or even a bigger city is over. And, like, what do you do with that? And then there would be a lot of kids you'd see that I would see that would get called up to the varsity as freshmen or sophomores 
to be like a, a role player at the because it's like oh well we need like a we need a you know another another starting pitcher for the the weeks that we have like an, an extra game or something so he'll be like our fourth starter we only typically play three games a week in baseball um, or like you know we need a bat off the bench so like it should be about making these kids the best versions of themselves when they're seniors not like making your team the best version of itself right now and is a kid going to be more helped by playing every day at say the JV level starting and being able to play every single day yeah. versus go and mostly sit on the bench at it's the varsity a, yeah, it's level. a natural progression I mean the teams are set up as a natural progression so my oldest son played varsity as a freshman he came in as a six foot one kid who could dunk as a freshman yeah. he was a nice size at, you know and, and basketball was his life and it was a natural progression for him my youngest son who's a freshman at LS um, is a big boy and he's a JV player um, I think in his mind, he would have liked to have been considered to play varsity. It wasn't a consideration. Um, I'm more likely to put you on JV and bring you up. Mm. He's um, LS is a big lacrosse sport yeah. at lacrosse school. Um, he's a freshman. He's six. He's a six foot one, hundred and eighty five pound freshman. He's a nice size. He played yeah. JV lacrosse the entire season. They go into playoffs. He gets moved up yeah. to varsity. Most likely won't play. But he gets that beautiful opportunity of saying, yeah, "You're I, the future." And I think that I think that ego-wise does more than if he had been on varsity the whole year, but had basically not played up there. I agree. Know? And you know, the coach yeah. said to him too when he moved up to varsity, he's you know I think the coach does a nice job of keeping these kids where they need to be. As he moved up to varsity, it was the push and pull. He said, "Congratulations, mm -hmm. we recognize that you should come up." And then the first day of practice, he said to him. Any balls that are lying around, pick them up. If mm -hmm. I need a glass of water, I need you to go get me some water. I need you. Yeah. So, like, don't get too big for yourself. Yeah, and I think that's, that's really important. I think yeah. the coaches being open with their players, it goes back to relationship is big, too, of, hey, like, you know, we, we think you're really talented. You know, we know that you are good enough to be one of the 15 spots on the varsity right now, but we think it's better for your long-term growth as a freshman to be playing almost every minute of the game down at the JV level than being number 15 out of 15 on the varsity this year and kind of, you know, sitting on the I bench. I think it's totally reasonable stuff. to say, I don't think you're that good. Yeah. I think yeah. you're good. I don't think you're that yeah. good. I mean, yeah. I said to, we have, I have a seventh grader that I just saw in the, in the gym. Two kids I just saw. One, a parent sent me something about um, an eighth grader that's going to be a rising freshman, said, I'd like to know how you feel about freshmen on varsity because my son's going to be a freshman, and I think he's, he's, he's you know, going to be a consideration yeah. for varsity. I said, I, I have no rules about it. If your kid's good enough to be on varsity, yeah. he will be, and, you know, that sort of thing. And then I walked in the gym, and I'll tell you, I was waiting to see what he looked like because mm -hmm. I heard that. Um, and then a seventh grader who looked really good, and I said to him, you look great. I'm super impressed with you as a seventh grader. He'll be a rising eighth grader. I said, the second you think you're really good is the second you stop getting better. Yep. So the best thing to ever happen to you is for you to recognize that you're really not that good. Okay, so here's my question, all right? Now, we, we've talked about the kids. Let's talk about the coaches. 
from what I've seen, it's really clicky. If you have a high school job, I would imagine that you worked your ass off to get that job. Okay. Yeah, I want to ask. But about, the people about the who journey. hire, but yeah. the people who hire have expectations, right? So now you've got kids entering high school or you know, at that level mm -hmm. whose parents are um, on the board. Yeah, okay. The town, yeah. So now That's true. the That's kid true. doesn't. The kid knows nothing about this, right? But a coach wants to keep their job. <laughs> right, they're expected to win, so they're not going to have a lot of time to sit back and 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 judge whether this, um, whether every kid on their team has, ha is going to grow after puberty. They're going to go with the kids that they that they know they can roll with, right? So there's, it's not a perfect, you know, it's not a perfect puzzle that we can put together. But on the other hand, I'm only speaking as a big kid. Yeah. All right, what's not fair. And I, and I think big kids des deserve better coaching. And I'm, I'm saying this because if you're a 6'1 kid in eighth grade, right, or whatever it is, you probably, you're always taught to take it easy on the other kids. You're taught to take it easy because it's not fair. Mm. You know, you're bigger than they are. You know, don't go so hard. But meanwhile, it's a, it's a guard's game now. Sure. So... If you know your only advantage now, remember you're, you probably still haven't hit puberty, and if you have, mm -hmm. you're just learning how to handle it. So, as a bigger kid that's never been able to play the game, seeing the basket instead of having your back to the basket, it's a totally different world, and you get punished for it. So, instead of instead of learning how to be a little bit tougher, right, by having to go through some mm -hmm. some adversity, what they teach you is okay, well. You don't have to, you know, these kids are thinking, well, I've got to learn how to shoot threes, okay, because it's a three and D game, right? The emphasis is on three, not D, okay? So now they can't play their position, so they never develop. Why? Because that's not the position the coach needs them in. What does the coach do? The coach asks them, look, you need to rebound. You need to do this. You need to do that. But then you've got the kid that's not getting any playing time. Why? Because he doesn't rebound very well, right? You need to be better, but no one's teaching these kids to be better. It's a small, it's a small game, but the first time, and it's just my opinion, yeah. first time another Shaq comes around, all right, it's going to turn right back into a big man's game. If you look at, you know, uh, Atuka, Akanta, what's the guy's name from uh, Milwaukee? Giannis. Oh, Giannis, yeah. Right? <laughs> you get a kid like that, he has very little interest in shooting a bunch of threes. He's yeah. taking it in your face, and everybody wants that. But it's hard to get that if you don't let the kid be themselves. You know, it's tough. You know, be gentle. No, there's no need to be gentle, right? Gentle guys don't win. Gentle <laughs> players don't win. That, again, that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a sport, you know, you know, maybe basketball versus some of these other sports is the truth of the matter is we're cutting a significant number of kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm cutting 35 kids. Yeah. And these are kids who played AAU. Yeah. These are kids who went to basketball camp. They're walking into the yeah. gym as basketball players. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think you're right. We make mistakes and we, you know, we really try our best. But what it really comes down to is really, really good tryouts. The tryouts have got to be better than watching kids play five on five. Yeah. Because some kids walk into the gym at a disadvantage. There's four mm -hmm. guys who happen to be on the court who are best friends. One yeah. guy is, you know, track and field. He's just yeah, running right. up and down the court. He's not right. getting the ball. So... We have to find ways to set up tryouts so we can legitimately see things that are not as simple as X's and O's. Um, you know, where do they naturally play? 
depends. Did they have a good AAU coach? Mm -hmm. Did this AAU coach tell this kid, this seventh grader that I just looked at, um, I was with Judson, we were in the gym, and he said, why is this seventh grader putting his back to the basket the whole time? Well, he's on an AAU team where he's the biggest one. Yeah. He's a nice size, but he's not going to be 6'8". Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, he's going to be a guard. Yeah. And his, you know, his seventh grade coach told him to put his back to the basket. So Judson and I are trying to evaluate that because that's not how I see him later. So there's a million factors. Great tryouts is so important. How it's, long do they give you for tryouts? That's a great question. We only got three days, three full days, because we are almost immediately going into a wow. weekend of, and the MIAA, you know, does not allow us enough time. Hmm. A lot of states get more time than we do. We get the Monday after Thanksgiving until playoffs in February. So the state of Washington, they get the entire month of June to evaluate in the middle of, wow. like, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. And so do I get any time? I don't get any time. December 1st. Yeah. I cannot look at my kids. I cannot coach my kids until December 1st. That is a massive disadvantage to the kids. And that's wow. your school implementing that? No, that's MIAA. Oh, okay. I thought yeah. you said from weekend after. Oh, yeah. Okay. December 1st. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, and it, you know, yeah. give or take. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, if we're really talking about the kids, if this is legitimately what we're talking about, then the MIAA needs to give us more opportunity to evaluate kids. Yeah. And and that's the truth. And, you know, there's not enough time in the calendar, obviously, but we need a little bit more time to evaluate because if I could get five full days, mm -hmm. yeah, it, I would be better. Mm -hmm. And I think the parents want to know their kid's been evaluated fairly. Yeah. I mean, I'm cutting 30 kids in three days. Right. So, you know, I, I'm trying to get to a place, but I think I've, I think every single year I've coached and I've been coaching for 20 years, I've made mistakes. There's not enough time, so. With the, so, you don't have you've got say three day, five days. Five? You you can legitimately take what you want. Okay. But you know you have gym time, so you have three teams. Mm -hmm. You have six teams because you have girls th have three, the boys have three. There's gym time, and you have essentially a week. The next week you're starting to look at yeah. preseason games. So is your relationship. What's the relationship with the AAU coach? Because they're obviously spending more time with their AAU coaches than they are their high school coaches. I'm sure the AAU coach has a different perspective on where the kid should be playing or what position they should be playing. Oh, he's a two, he's a three, right? And so are there competing interests between what you see and what the uh, AAU coach I, I think one of the issues for the AAU coaches is they don't have enough practice. They just play a lot of games. So mm. when you get to high school, I have kids six days a week. Yeah. Six days a week. I mean, these kids have never seen six days a week. Mm -hmm. They usually have one practice and six games on the weekend. So it's a different relationship. For them to come six days a week and be in the gym six days a week in a row, one, two, three, four, five, six, it's different even from the get-go. And the relationship's already different because I'm developing over time. But I think, it, I think there's some difficulty in the evaluation process without more time. And I think, for me, I think if we really want to have programs where kids get cut fairly and everyone feels like it's fair, which is what we want. There's not a coach in America who doesn't want the trials to be fair, in my opinion. But then we need a little more time. We need to be given a little more opportunity to see what the kids are made of before we make teams. And unfortunately, we don't have time. So we, we have to evaluate quickly. Yeah. We have to watch their feet. Do they have good feet? Are they tripping over themselves? Do they have good hands? Can they catch and shoot? Are they smart? Do they share the basketball? Do they, are they in good condition? 
I've had kids. I've said to them, I can't evaluate you. You're out of shape. I don't know what you would look like if you're in shape. I bet you'd be amazing if you're in good shape, but I can't. I don't have time. Mm-hmm. So I'd love a little more time. It's unfortunate. So instead, I don't have more time. I need better evaluators. I need to know ahead of time exactly what I'm looking for. I'll tell you, I do not make teams until I see the kids. And I know that is unpopular. People make, people have captains before tryouts. Yeah. I'm assuming your captain's going to make it, and so you're pretty <laughs> sure that he's going to make it because you already made him a captain. I say to my kids, I don't make captains. I don't know if you're on the team. Right. You're not guaranteed a spot. My seniors are like, oh, yes, I am. You probably are. But the message cannot be, I've already made captains. Yeah. I've already made the team, and now you go into tryouts, and your friend, the Will, yeah. was Will already cut from the team before he got there or was Will given full opportunity? So Will, what I would say, so Will was on the varsity team his senior year, so he made the team. He was a first-time varsity player as a senior, but was basically taken by the coach. And and to to clarify Will, it wasn't that he should have been on varsity any time before his senior year because he had not, he was such a late bloomer physically. Mm -hmm. He was a great kid. I think everybody recognized that he was just a sponge and the hardest worker there was. But his senior year, he grows literally uh, 10 inches, like 10 inches over one season. So why wasn't it enough then to, that's to what walk I'm saying in? Is like... that they, he walked in, and he his first time during tryouts at, at the plate, he was just hitting 350-foot shots into right. Just like, like college-type power, like professional-type power from what I've, my experience is what I've seen, and I've been around the professional game a bit. So... Um, and the coaches were still looking at him through the lens of, oh, we got to find a spot for Will because he's such a great kid and such a hard worker. But just because they didn't take the time to actually watch who he was. You know, I don't know if they were watching him when he was doing batting practice or talking to each other doing something else. I don't know what they were watching when he was pitching, um, but they just could not see him for who he had become. They kept yeah. seeing him for who he was. So with him, the issue is. Like, you need to have good evaluators who can throw out what they saw from the year before or from whatever or what they've heard and look at who the kid is now because kids mature at such different rates in high school. And you will every once in a while have that kid that shoots up eight inches during their time in high school over one off season, and, like, have a coach who's able to evaluate who the kid is now and, and throw out all that other stuff. You know, I told the story... I think when we were in here with Q about growing up, there was a kid who was the stud uh, Little League player. He was like our senior year, he hit like 27 home runs one year in Little League. and he, But he was like five foot six and like 160 pounds as a 12-year-old. All throughout high school, he's like on varsity as a freshman. He's playing shortstop the whole time, batting cleanup. And he, he didn't hit one home run his entire high school career. He should not have been playing shortstop in mm-hmm. high school. He was didn't have the range, didn't have anything. And it was like because the coaches were still going off of the reputation that he'd amassed when he was bigger than everybody else because he matured faster. Right. And they couldn't see him through the lens of we got to evaluate him now. And it's like, I think that's something that some coaches struggle with is you're, you is seeing a player for who they are right now not who they once were you know especially at the high school level because kids 
change at such different rates. You I know? mean, you right. try to do yeah. that. You you really do. Like, you try not to have preconceived notions of your kids. Um, but at the same time, you also want to use their past season as an evaluation yeah. for the next season. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, there's lots of examples of kids who shot out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, what's um, what's the player's name? Eyebrow? Anthony? Anthony Davis. Davis. Anthony yeah. Davis. I mean, yeah. he grew eight inches. He didn't have a Division One offer. Yeah. And then between his sophomore year, his junior year, you know, grew eight, ten inches, and all of a sudden, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure his coach must have been like, where did he come from? So but I, yeah. is it a question of evaluated experience? Because the coach may not. I mean, again, if you see a kid, if Will is that big, yeah. then you don't know how to coach him. It's just, I mean, yeah. you have to have a plan for, I mean, I'm not going to say have to have a plan for a kid like that because there's no plan. You know, yeah, he's just it there. Just happens, so but. you haven't experienced that before. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, was the kid done a disservice? Yeah. All right. Because the, the coach just didn't know. It's not, you know, it's not on the kid. And it's not on the coach because you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. But at least admit that you don't know and try to find someone who can help the kid. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, think right? it, I think maybe what I'm trying to say is just that, and this isn't so much in the case of you that puts so much into your time evaluating and, and eval- reevaluating every year, but just for coaches to be open to the unexpected. Yes. That's that's the, fair. The, you might have your whole thing, what you think your roster is going to be that's planned fair, yeah. out. But be open to a kid who transfers in from the other side of the country. I always is, am hoping. Yeah, as a stud. If you I'm get another say say, right? If you get say, another say say. Someone falls into my gym, I'm happy to take them. The whole offense is changing. Yeah. Okay, you know, we were going to do. But, or, 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 or be, you get the ball. be open to the kid having a late growth spurt his senior year or suddenly. The kid who was, you know, like the big kid that couldn't really walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now his body catches up to the fact mm-hmm. that he was six ten as a, you know, as a sixteen year old, and suddenly right. he has become coordinated. You know, just be open to that possibility. Don't continue to look through. Like I think it's just about always reevaluating where your players are at well, now. The coaches themselves yeah. change their systems, right? You're yeah. okay. Well, I can't run this system this year. I just don't have the athletes to do it. So yeah. now you're always reevaluating, right? But some coaches don't even do that. I mean, they are yeah. already set that this is the type of offense and the type of defense they're going to play, regardless. Hard you for know, basketball. Of, <laughs> right, regardless of what comes, what comes into your gym. Yeah. You've already decided we're going to be a three-point shooting team, and we don't have any shooters. But by God, we're going to chuck them up. Right. You know? Or we're going to full-court press, but yeah. we don't have the speed. The athletes yeah. to do it. Right? right? So at the end of the day. Or the, how about the coaches that they'll have a system that they're like, oh, this is this, – and then they get, like, a freak player. I think it's really more at the college level than – but, like, you'll get a freak player, but a player that doesn't really fit that system, and then they just keep trying to force the guy to play in the system instead of letting him do what he does amazingly It well. does happen all the time. Yeah. yeah that's um, true. That's true. So I'm speaking of I, I want to talk to you about your 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 own playing career. I know that you are very much in the coach mindset, and it's what you've been coaching for 20 years now. You said, yeah. But you know, where did you grow up, and then you wind up in? How do you go from where you grew up to Alaska to Arizona? So I grew up in Toronto, okay. Canada, and played basketball there. I came to the U.S. my senior year, went to high school in Arizona, um, got recruited to play. Um, various places and then chose Alaska, University of Alaska Anchorage. I love the coach. Went up there on my recruiting trip and just really loved it. Um, it was a long way from home. 
and a long way from every game we played other than University of Alaska Fairbanks. Yeah. <laughs> everything was in the lower 48. So that was um, tough academically that every game we had, we were gone for a week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is crazy, but we played against Bentley at Bentley when I was at University of Alaska. <laughs> wow. That is a long oh trip. God. Yeah. So we, and, and it was a successful program. We, we, Lost in the Sweet 16 that year. It was a good program, but then I transferred to University of Arizona, which was a little, you know, closer to home. Um, the Pac, it was a Pac-10 back then, not mm-hmm. Pac-12. Yeah. Every game was, you know, uh, California, Washington, Oregon, Arizona. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's just Division Two to Division One, and right. not just Division One, but like you know, like a, a BCS Division One mm-hmm. program. Um, did you have the opportunity to play at that level coming right out of high school? Um, so, and I went Division two right out of high school. Yeah, I'm saying, yeah. I know you went D2. Could you, did you have offers from D1 schools, like um, that level? I would say, I would say the D2 offer that I have was a competitive D2 offer. So, and, and you know, I think people are very caught up in Division one and Division two and Division three, Having played Division one, having played Division two, having coached Division three, mm-hmm. I say it all the time. We've become much more locked in on what division we're playing Mm -hmm. as we were then it didn't really occur to me um that the division two program would be that much different than a division one program so did i have division one opportunities yes i don't know if they were better or worse than division two on paper i think there's division one division two but at the time it didn't seem as important although i have a player um so i've coached about 15 players that have gone on to college mostly division one I had a player who would not take a Division II offer, absolutely had to have a Division I offer, and I think almost immediately regretted playing for a very, very high-quality Division II program. So try mm-hmm. to say to people, try to look at the program. Yeah. The issue is, obviously, the scholarships, yeah. which is right. a whole other podcast, right. because why we're only giving scholarships to Division I athletes and then partial to Division II and nothing right. to Division III. And then the money that goes into the program as well at the Division I uh, I would assume it was not just well. One, I would assume that maybe when so you loved your 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 um, visit to Alaska. Mm-hmm. You like you love the coach. You said I did. Yeah. You were you satisfied with the program itself aside from the bus rides and and the hundred percent. Yeah. So you probably weren't prepared when you went when you accepted that offer. It probably wasn't. You just weren't really fully prepared for the other stuff that wasn't the program, wasn't the coach, wasn't, you know, right. that came with the travel, Correct. the week, you know, week on end of being, having to try and do your schoolwork while being Correct. away from school and that level of travel and the wear and tear that takes on your body to be traveling that much as an athlete and in yeah. a bus or a plane or a bus to a plane to a bus. Um, so that, I, I, w- I would think that probably played a, a role in why you left was that it was you were not prepared when you made that decision to I'd go say there. So. Yeah. Um, but then also, aside from that, I would think that at, at the University of Arizona that there were, they just have more money in an athletic program for sure. for all sorts of perks that don't, that are, you know, what the, the, the chairs in the locker room, the chairs in the study hall, the kind of support you get for study hall, the, all that sort of stuff was probably a bit different once you moved up to the Division One level. It was, it was, to be honest, it was similar. University of Alaska Anchorage does not have professional um, sports up there. Mm-hmm. They're very well supported. Um, the university really support. I had a full 
athletic scholarship yeah. at Alaska. You know, they were, took care of everything. It was really a top-notch program that went into the NCAA tournament, high-level D2, won a lot of games. You know, uh, one of the girls ahead of me, my program was an All-American, so, you know, really high-quality, good basketball. Just don't remember at the time mm-hmm. there being issues about, you know, what level you were playing at yeah. as much as there is now. Yeah. I think there's much – kids are – very locked in on is this division one mm. division two II, division three naia mm-hmm. like who what where um and at the time i wanted my i wanted my college paid for yeah and right. both were paid for so it was like yeah. less of an issue you know i think that's going to change a lot over the next 10 years when sure. you see what's going on with the at the division one level of this big split that seems to be on the horizon between the schools that really make money off to of athletics and, and the ones that yeah. don't. Hundred percent. Um, you know, you, the University of Hartford is is dropping down to Division three without seems like really a plan. If they're just there's no plan. And by the way, yeah. that's a massive loss for the university because I yeah. think the university underestimates how many people want to be a part of a school that has a big athletic program. Mm-hmm. If you look at Villanova when they won the national championship the applications went up by 25%. And you, you know what I mean? Like, people want to go somewhere. People do when it's on them. I th- see, I think I've... My thoughts on Hartford is, one, that, look, the... the And I have a... I guess a relationship with all the f- America East and former America East schools and, and that level. Um, but that... I think that it doesn't drive it as much when you're at a low Division one At a big Division one, you get a huge boost from going, you know? The schools in the America East Conference, oh, basically none of them make money off of athletics because they're just, I mean, the University of Vermont probably turns a small profit off of basketball because they keep going to the NCAA yeah. tournament. Mm-hmm. But even they're not selling out. You go to games at Hartford and there's nobody there and, as fans. Um, and it's not a bad program. It wasn't a bad program at all. Um, it's, but they definitely lied in the report that was used where the school is in financial ruin right now and it's not athletics' fault. Yeah. Um, it's poor leadership. But athletics alone is not going to save it. It's not going to drive tons of money. Mm-hmm. If you were able to, you know, the, if you look at if they have 300, it was like something like they have 350 student athletes there right now. And on average, they're giving them like $16,500. Like, total is the average yep. cost. That's a lot. It's millions of dollars to when you add it up to that you're paying for students. So if you were, in theory, to replace them all with Division three athletes who are all paying their own way to go there, then you're not losing money on that. But that, it's in a sense. But the bigger thing is that, like, just a lot of these schools that are the small schools, Hartford has handled it in a really terrible way, their administration, but, like, there are a lot of other schools that are on that, like, ledge of are we going to continue to be financially viable and what are we going to do? Ryder just released a report. Someone sent it to me this morning. They're, they're $20 million in in the hole right now. Is that right? At wasn't, wasn't UMass Boston uh, in, in that type of situation a couple of years ago? It might have been. I don't know. UMass Boston's a little different because they're a state school, so mm-hmm. they can be they're kind of publicly funded. But, but they like, also oh, don't yeah. give athletic scholarships. They don't. But a lot of these like pr- small privates are going to be in trouble potentially. Um, and I got a little sidetracked talking about the schools and all that sort of stuff. But but like it, it's. There's going to be a split between, I think, between the real big, the pits of the world, mm. the, the Power Five conferences, and then the rest of Division Agreed. One, yeah. and then what happens there? You know, you're going to have two separate tournaments. You're going to have 
like a, it's like a subdivision. Well, now of, you're gonna the disparity between and with nil. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're gonna have a player making a million dollars on a team with a player who's getting his education paid for. Yeah. And they're playing together. So, I mean, that's a massive difference. And then not only that, but you're going to have a team of players that are making millions of dollars selling, you know, Mercedes against a team that are getting nothing. So, I mean, now the disparity is going to be massive. And and honestly, I don't think the NCAA even had a plan for it. Um, Certain schools are not going to allow you to use your image to... You know, make yeah. millions of dollars, and some schools are encouraging that, kids to do That's going to help. That's going to hurt those schools in recruiting a lot. It's going to you know? really hurt the it's schools. It's a um, huge difference, right? Yeah. And we had a whole episode where we talked about that. About, I mean, to yeah. me, if a kid can make money, let him make money. Go make your money. Because if, if, if there's no reason that being an athlete, because you're an athlete, you shouldn't be able to. Like, we don't tell kids that are in med school, hey, there's a way for you to make right. money. Like, legally make money right. as a resident at a hospital. You've got, you're getting your med degree. Like, you could... you. Can get you get paid as a resident. You could make money tutoring, doing whatever else. We're not like, hey, because you're on the doctor track, you are not allowed to make any money using your image or likeness. Or because you're an amazing student in our engineering department, you can't go get a, like a job while you're still finishing up your degree that pays yeah. you six figures. So why do we do that with athletes? No, is, except is, that, except that, you know, there if there were no boundaries, we're literally talking about athletes. I mean. You know, and I think for me, as as somebody who's you know incredibly sensitive to the dynamics on a team because I know how valuable it is, I feel like if you have a guy making millions, which is legit, you have you have a guy who's going to make a million dollars, and you have a person on the team, and the NCAA won't pay for their parents to come to a game. Yeah. So you have a guy with millions, and you have a guy that says, "I just want my mom to come to the game." And the NCAA says, yeah. we're not paying for parents to come to games. But the this guy has a. <laughs> What's that? The kid will pay. <laughs> well, I mean, you hope his teammate's yeah. going to be like, yeah. I can't even have my yeah. brother fly to a game yeah. to watch me play. Mm-hmm. And this guy's driving around in a Lamborghini. I mean, yeah. how are you going to manage it as a coach? It's, it we're becomes, not, we don't talk about how the coaches are going to manage these relationships. It, it becomes a professional, because that's like in the, in the minor leagues, baseball minor leagues. You have a guy that was a high draft pick that signs a $15 million signing mm-hmm. bonus. Yeah. So he is a millionaire in the same locker room as a guy who was an undrafted free agent and has not reached his six years. Because in baseball, you have to go six years before you can become a free agent and start negotiating your own con- It's a terrible system where you're. Yeah. And so you'll have a guy or a couple guys that were high draft picks that got their signing bonuses $15 million, $17 mm-hmm. million. In the same locker room as a guy who's making a thousand dollars a paycheck and like every yeah. two weeks okay. before taxes, so it's like it's a professional, a low yeah. level professional <laughs> yeah, yeah. locker. Yeah, that's but, what college. But, but becomes, here's the thing: is, the yeah. kids that are going to make a million, okay, are going to be kids that are worth the money. All right, true. everybody's not. Yeah. Gonna oh be no, I, that, true. Right? Yeah. So. If you like the kid that left Pitt, the kid yeah. that won a the Blitnikoff Award, right? Yeah. They're saying it's $2 million, blah, blah, blah. It's nowhere near that, okay? Just going to USC. Now, he's making some really good money, yeah. okay? But if Pitt can't afford to, and it hurts my heart, but if you can't afford to keep him, if you're talking about college teaching you about life, well, that's about as good as lesson as yeah. you can possibly get. Because the kids are still coming out to a job market that doesn't exist. Okay, if they're playing, right, their dreams are going to the NFL. If they're playing, their dreams are going to the NBA or playing professionally in Europe where you don't have that many good-paying jobs. You probably have the same amount of good-paying jobs in Europe as you do in the NBA right now. 
okay? Or you can go yeah. to the you know the G League if you're a high enough pick, right? So you're again, job market it doesn't exist, all right? And a one percent chance of going further. You mean to tell me that that kid can't make money? Yeah, I mean, yeah, my, true. My, I agree. my belief is if you can get paid for your abilities in college, whatever they are, if mm -hmm. your athletic ability creates a market for you mm -hmm. to get paid, and it's a, it's it's a legal market. It's mm -hmm. not like you know doing some sort of right, you know, right. goon work for organized crime or something. Right. If it's if you can you can legally get paid because if people like you or whatever, you're a good enough athlete that there is a company out there that wants to throw money at you mm -hmm. to endorse them. Whether you're an athlete or you're a medical student or you are a tech whiz and call that like right. it should be an even playing field because people are like, well, they're getting a free education. Well, it's like. Yeah, but like, what about the you know the amazing like you know tech whiz that got got a, a free yeah, a free I, ride I to go to MIT? Are we telling him? No, but it's free and worth every penny. Yeah, are, are Here's we telling my him issue. He can't make money. By the way, you my know? issue is not that because I agree hundred percent with both of you. Yeah. I really do. I think kids should get paid if they can get paid. My real issue is what the NCAA does to the kids who don't have the big opportunity, and that is the university is making a crap ton of money. Oh, uh, let's yeah. let's use my alma mater, Arizona. The university is making a ton of money on the University of Arizona basketball players. No question about Absolutely. it. It is full. It is 15,000 people at a Absolutely. game. You know, they've got they're selling booze. I mean, yeah. they're doing everything right. You got 15 guys out there. Well, 13 guys. You got one guy making a million cuz he's working, you know, yeah. the, for the Mercedes dealership. You got another one who's got a, his face on a poster or whatever. And you got another one that's doing whatever and millions are coming into the university. And then you have 10 of them who can't even sneeze and have the Kleenex paid for yeah. because they've hit the maximum that the NCAA allows. So to me, the NCAA needs to give some of these kids a little more than just the education. And that is, I'm not saying everyone gets paid million dollars, but it but kills some, me that their parents can't attend games when, because they can't mm -hmm. afford it. When you mm -hmm. look at like so, there's 15,000 people there, and and number six off the bench, his parents can't come to the game. Yeah, when you look at the amount, like at schools like Arizona or Duke or Kentucky, they're like, oh, NIL, like yeah, now the kids are getting paid, now we can all just turn our backs, whatever. But it doesn't. The money's not coming directly from the school. Right, mostly. it's coming and, from, and yeah. that's still a problem. In that, the school Arizona would or would not be making, would not be selling out the arena, making all the money on ticket sales, concessions, merchandise, if not for the players that are out there on the court playing. And it's not just the five starters and superstars because those guys wouldn't be as good as they are if not for the ten other players that are busting their butt in practice. Agree, agree, and. At these schools that are turning a real profit, like I'm not talking about, you know, the Northeasterns, North right. e because Northeastern doesn't make any money. That's my alma mater. Shout so, out to Northeastern. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's that's my alma mater, and I'm not bagging, but it's just you go to a basketball game, and I love Matthews Arena. It's my favorite place in the world, but you go to a men's basketball game there, you go to a girls' basketball game there, there's like it's know, empty. 200 people. They're, yeah. they're not making money, the cost of opening the arena versus. Right. But you, these big time schools that are making legitimate millions upon millions every year they're making it because of the student athletes and not just the star ones they're making it because of 
everyone on that team that is contributing. Right, and the NCAA is washing their hands and saying, hey, we're giving you NIL. Yeah. And and you should go off and make your million dollars. And the school should have to give them a cut if you're an employee of the school. I think a small piece for some of the guys, and and by the way, I've I've always really had a hard time with the rule about, you know, can kids... I, I just really feel strongly that kids should have the ability to utilize a little fund of money. Yeah. Uh, one of the kids that I played with at University of Arizona was from Chicago. Um, she had nothing. She came from nothing. She got the free education, which was fabulous. She was a fabulous player. She did go on to play professionally. But while she was in college, mm. her family never could come to mm-hmm. watch her play. They did not have the money to do it. And I always wondered if the university couldn't just have some money that oh, these it kids... it absolutely well, had the money that it could have. But you, you know, can't leave it up to the university because the NIL allows you, well, in certain states, it allows the high school players, right? Because you're only recruiting a kid because he or she is a good high school player. Yeah. So some states, well, actually a lot of the states now, are allowing the high school kids to get their NIL deals. So it gives them value before they actually walk into the college. Yeah. So they've already earned that money. Remember, the scholarships are one-year renewables anyway. Yeah. So the money that that kid's going to get is only going to be for one year. They're going to continuously have to prove that they're worth the money that the sponsors want to give them. And yeah. I, I still, I just still, I feel like the NIL is great for what it is, but I feel like, I hope that that kids are not getting you know, that it doesn't lose the momentum because, oh, now we've gotten this windfall for some kids. Mm-hmm. I remember it kind of started with the kids at, at Northwestern who were trying to unionize on, on the basketball team. <laughs> you hope that you don't lose that because there are, you know, the the schools and the program shouldn't be let off the hook. You have all these kids that are risking, you know, limb and sometimes, you know, life out there competing for you yeah. and to help you make a lot of money. At the end of the day, you look at the books and you see what the net earned is off of the men's basketball team for the year the, the players should be getting a percentage of that you know they absolutely should um in my opinion yeah um, so, my, so my question to you is as a coach all right you've been on both sides of the fence both male and female what are those things that go bump in the night do you feel have have you felt more pressure or are there any times that you feel more pressure now that you're on the other side, as in not necessarily having something to prove to On the boys' anyone, side? You mean right, versus the girls' on side? On the yeah. boys' side. I want, yeah, I, w- side. I wanted to ask just about that transition and how mm-hmm. that went and what the response was, what the pushback was, if there was any, and has that subsided at all now that you've been there and have had success? I think, honestly, the pushback at first was from some of the girls that I coach who were really unhappy that I would go and coach boys. And and actually, yeah. And actually, my own sister, um, who's a psychologist, she said, I'm really disappointed that you're going to coach boys when, you know, you're a role model for girls. It's so important for us to see female coaches coaching girls. And she was disappointed to hear that I was going to coach boys. And I told her, I'm coaching the boys for the girls because girls need to know that women can coach boys. And I feel like that is as important as anything as a role model. Um, I'll give you an example. I coached at um, a high school, uh, not in our league, a non-league game, and the girls' team was playing after their girls' team. We were at their gym. And after the game, a couple of the high school basketball girls came over and said, we've never seen a woman coach boys before. And that was the best thing to watch. And one of the girls said, 
I want to coach boys now from watching that. Like, I didn't know that girls or women could coach boys. So it's not, you know, it's not supposed to be a statement to anybody. The job came up in my town. Um, I love the school in my town. I love the athletic department. It's really well supported. And I decided to, um, you know, go for the job. My assistant coach at Newton North is the girls coach at the high school now, too. So we have a male coach coaching girls and we have a female coaching boys. And I don't think anybody cared one way or the other. To be honest, the only real issues I've faced other than curiosity, um, especially when we go into inner city, Mm -hmm. um, I see a lot of people that are more curious than anything to see how this is going to go down, is the referees. Oftentimes they think I'm doing the scorebook. So they ask me for the score. You know, do you have your scorebook? (laughs) And I'll say, my scorer probably has the scorebook. You know, and, you know, that'll be that moment of they didn't realize. Um, So there's been some minor issues with the referees, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just not realizing, you know, that I was a head coach or continuously turning to my male Mm -hmm. assistant coach um, until we make it really clear that, you know, if you have a question or an issue, you come to me first. But so to answer the question about transitioning from girls basketball to boys basketball, it was never really about boys or girls necessarily. I just I love I I love what I'm doing and I love the school that I'm coaching at. So for me now, I think it's is there pressure for me to win? There's definitely pressure for me to win. There was always pressure for me mm-hmm. to win. Mm-hmm. I never ever think that a high school basketball coach shouldn't try to win. And there shouldn't be pressure to do that. I should not keep my job if I can't win. That's truth. And, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know that a winning program doesn't necessarily mean that we win. But if you're doing everything right, eventually you'll have a winning program. So, you know, does that make does that answer your it question? Makes, it, it, no, but I, I love it. <laughs> I love it. It, it. And it didn't answer my question just because I thought that the answer would be different, not because you didn't answer it. Okay. Okay. So I'm not, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. I'll tell you, just to go back to communication, because one of the best things I heard this year was, and it just sticks with me, I can't, I can't lose it, is um, Hubert, the coach of UNC. Mm-hmm. You know, brand new coach. Rookie coach. Yeah. Yep. Hubert Davis gets to the finals. I mean, it, it's incredible. Of course, Roy Williams handed him a beautiful program. Mm-hmm. He's not, you know, he doesn't have a big enough ego to think that he built that from scratch, mm-hmm. right? So they said to him, what are some things that are really important to you as a coach? And he said the best thing that I've ever heard a coach say. And that was, I have a requirement that my boys come into my office at least two to three times a week for 15 minutes and talk to me about something other than basketball. And the interviewer said, you know, why would you do that? And he said, because I can never have a winning program if I don't know who I'm coaching. And I have to talk to my kids about stuff other than basketball to understand who they are. At the same time, I faced a coach this year who said to one of his players, you are lucky that you're sitting in my office talking to me because this is a real privilege for you. And I thought to myself, wow, here you have Hubert who realizes his privilege Mm -hmm. as a coach. And here you have a coach who's not as winning of a coach thinking it's the player's privilege. Yeah. Once you forget that it's your privilege, you shouldn't be coaching. So that's the difference to me between a good coach and a bad coach. It is your privilege to coach. 
That's the truth. These are, you know, most of us coach not for money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of college coaches who have lots of money. Yeah. Um, most high school coaches, AAU coaches, developmental coaches do not make a lot of money. Yeah. So it is our privilege to coach. And, and I know for you, even when you came into the gym at Newton North and you spent an hour with my kids and I thanked you profusely and you said, oh, it was my privilege to come in. Mm-hmm. And I hear that time and time again from great coaches. Is, so maybe, uh, it, it, maybe it's a question of re- redefining. Because uh, I think that when you asked me to come in, I, I, I'm not sure if I went in as a coach. Um, I went in as more of a mentor. I think that's what Hubert was probably saying. We look at him as a coach, but his value as a human being, he just gave you that in his interview. You know, and when those kids come to you, they're not coming to you as coach. They know you're probably going to jump on their butts, right? But they feel comfortable enough to sit and, and, and talk with you about their innermost feelings. So they value you as a human being. And the guy you were talking about, it's, it's your privilege to come into the office. He's an ass. Yeah. Shouldn't be coaching. I mean, I, I know we've talked about it multiple times, but like the in my career, the best coaches that I had and the ones that stayed with me to this day are the ones that took an interest in me as a person, not for what I could do for them on the court or on the field, but for just who I was, you know, and they were unfortunately few and far between in my in my career. And I think unfortunately that's the case for a lot of kids, no matter, you know, you get to the college level even it's still and that the coaches that really make a difference and make a big impact and other really great coaches are the ones that that get to know you and who you are and care about you and you know i'm not saying you need to be a parent to me but i'm saying you need to take an interest in who i am as a person um how can you expect to get the most out of a kid if you're not putting in even that's kind of like a minimal amount just to get to know them these talk with them sometimes where they're where it's not about basketball it's not about anything just about you know just getting to know them yeah, I have not found a difference between high school girls and high school boys with respect to that. I found mm. it to be very similar. Every, I thought maybe boys would be less likely um, to want to connect at that level, and I found it absolutely untrue, um, almost to the point of being surprised at how much, you know, I, I always try to take kids one-on-one, and having being a parent of four kids, you know, one-on-one time is sometimes few and far between but we try to do that because you get great you know connection with your own kid when it's just you and them so we try to do that um and I just found the boys were as craving that as much as the girls it's been a huge part of the program and it's a pleasant surprise for me as a coach how do you navigate I mean you've got three boys that I know of that are all athletes and one I, girl. And one and one girl. How how do you navigate being coach and being mom? It's because you're looking at what your sons are doing poorly on the floor, or your daughter are doing poorly on the floor. And you know, how do you transition from you know you being extremely upset in one moment to being you know what? Let me calm down. Yeah. <laughs> just talk to them and be there for them. Yeah. So I mean, I have a freshman son who, you know, he'll be a sophomore mm-hmm. next year, and he, you know, he legitimately wants to try out for varsity as a sophomore, yeah. as, as all of his friends do. Um, I try to separate so that I can be the mom at some level and be a coach. And for one of my kids, I'll ask, what do you, what do you want right now? Do you want me to talk to you as a mom, or do you want me to talk to you as a coach? Judson loved for me to talk to him as a coach. After games, he loved to analyze the game. He loved to hear about it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Calvin, not as much. Calvin would prefer for me to be a mom after a game for a while, and then later he wants to hear about mm -hmm. it as a coach. So I guess every kid is a little bit different. Um, and my daughter did not want to play basketball. She did play for a short time, but she never really had any interest in me being her coach. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So pretty much I'm just mom with her. So we should be interviewing Judson. Yeah. <laughs> Get the real scoop, right? <laughs> um, so now uh, another question. What are some of the, the – what were your previous stops before Lincoln Sudbury? Because I, I have a Lincoln Sudbury question, but it's kind of – Okay, so I, I was at Lincoln Sudbury yeah. um, about 19 years ago. Okay. Yeah, well, actually my daughter was a baby. Um, and I coached, I was an assistant girls coach, girls okay. varsity coach. Um, I left, I left LS and I went to Curry College. Yeah. Coached Curry College, then had my last baby um, and went to Weston mm -hmm. High School. Coached at Weston High School for a number of years, left Weston High School, went to Newton North coaching girls. Yeah. Then took a little bit of time off as Judson was. Um, playing at Worcester Academy, and he was getting pretty competitive. We didn't yeah. want to, I didn't want to miss his games, mm -hmm. and then went back then to went LS. Back. Yeah. So LS, because my experience, I remember the first time. It's one of the few schools that I never. I grew up in Cambridge, so I never played a competitive sport. I think that we wound up playing a road game at Lincoln Sudbury, even though Cambridge was in the city, and at the time we were in the GBL, and played lots of other like city schools. We still would have non-conference games in one of the different sports. I was playing, you know, at you know, a Bedford or an Acton Boxborough yeah. or you name it. Or Summer League, AAU, I'd play games at, you know, the other. But I never – so the first time I got there was when I was an assistant coach, uh, coaching baseball and actually coaching – my first year coaching the kid Will that I talked about. Um, but uh, I remember when we arrived there and I was like, oh, my God, this looks like a college campus. This is incredible. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, Sudbury and Lincoln both are very affluent towns. I know they place a premium on – education there they place a premium on like success um did you was there a lot of pressure did you feel like going in there to this school i know you'd coach plenty of other places but even other schools like newton north or weston which are well doing you know towns affluent towns it's not quite the same feeling as when you go to ls because ls routinely across multiple sports as a public school is placing kids straight from there to division one colleges which in Massachusetts, that's not typically happening at that volume, you know, uh, where I remember there was a streak that the baseball team every year had, like, a kid that was going to, like, a Vanderbilt or a Wake They have Forest a great baseball player this year. Like, lacrosse, lacrosse was also Lacrosse as well, right? but they have it's, a beautiful yeah, baseball they, player who plays basketball, and he's, I coached him in middle yeah. school. <laughs> he's, he dropped basketball. Now, <laughs> I think I think he's going to maybe Wake Forest yeah, or something. He's, and, he's, and when I was He's back, a fantastic you know, they, player. They, they've had, this has been... For 20, 30 years, because I heard about them in high school. They had a powerhouse program back then, yeah. and that was 20 years ago. That, like, the multiple sports that they're placing kids, you know, you're not going Lincoln Sudbury to prep to Division One. They're mm -hmm. just going straight D1, which does not happen in Massachusetts for public schools, really. So, and then on top of it, you have the two towns and the premium they place on uh, basically success, school rankings athletic teams winning, kids going on to great things. Was there a lot of pressure that came with that? How did the pressure compare to some of the other jobs that you had? I think um, I think it's similar. I think Newton North is similar. Mm -hmm. Newton North is a huge, beautiful school in Newton. Um, the expectation was that you're going to build a program that's really successful. Um, they have a, a wonderful boys coach there who taught me a lot 
about coaching boys, honestly, just by watching him. Um, the shot doctor. Yeah, that's right, shot doctor. Um, he's he's a he's a great coach. He is. Um, so I think the pressure was similar. You know, um, it was similar at Newton North as it is at LS. The difference is this is my community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I go to Starbucks and I bump into a parent and I cut their kid. It's terrible. It's terrible. If you don't have compassion and you don't spend enough time explaining to people that you understand what it feels like to have your kid cut, then you walk into Starbucks and you, you know, get something thrown at you. Throw on a hoodie. And I mean, so it's really hard. It's <laughs> yeah. super hard. And it's. You know, it's it's the best thing is to live in the community where I coach. It's the worst thing to live in the community where I coach. Um, now I'm going to face my son's friends, parents who I've known since birth. Mm-hmm. I will cut somebody that I have known their son since birth. It's unfortunate. But at the end of the day, if you're super locked in on your program and you're super locked into doing what's right for your program and building something that the whole town can be proud of, then you have yeah. to stick with that. That's all you can do. Do you have another coach or a series of coaches that you continue to learn from? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You know what? You want to know what I learned from you? Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm not sure if we can put this on film. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing I learned from you that stuck with me was Bobby talks a lot about balance. He talks a lot about, like, you want to make your move, you want to move defenders, and you want them to be off balance. And it's so important when you're playing to get your defense off balance while maintaining your own balance. Spent a lot of time with some of my bigger players on making moves and staying balanced. It's just that just stuck with me. I talk about it all the time. And when we talk about new moves, we talk about spin. We talk about moving off of players. We talk about breaking someone's ankles, all that kind of thing, doing it when we're balanced. And do you remember that? I do. Yeah, that's that's a big thing for you. And being such a big guy who's actually surprisingly good on his feet, balance obviously yeah. played a critical role for you, I would think, as a player. Absolutely. Um, I've, I was fortunate enough to have wonderful coaches, and uh, I spent many years tripping over my own feet. Like you said, Tim, I can't walk and chew yeah. gum at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Until puberty. <laughs> right? Puberty right. helped out a lot. But, yeah. But, yeah. I have one more question, because I know we've, we've been going a while. And we're, uh, but at Lincoln Sudbury, and I, I think I don't, I don't. I think it's the same at Newton North, but um, there's a Metco program. And for people that don't know, Metco is they take uh, kids from the inner city, minorities, largely black and brown kids. Uh, it's a lottery that you need to enter if you get chosen, and then you kind of get you assigned to school, and they're bused to the suburbs. And families choose it for you know a variety of reasons. They feel like it's the best educational opportunity for their. Um, and I didn't know about Metco because I grew up in the city, so I, I didn't didn't know about it. And it wasn't until I started getting into teaching and coaching and at some Metco schools, and I started to see it and see the the social segregation that was still occurring. Um, which even in the city, you saw some segregation around racial lines, but nothing like that to that degree. Like you go to the lunchroom where at Cambridge Virginia Latin, where I went, it was. Uh, you know, United Nations at every table for the most part. And then, like I said, there's some social segregation in classes and other things. But um, how do you handle that? You know, do you have Metco kids that, that 
that compete for you or come out and play for you or other sports there because some schools make a lot of accommodations to help them. Well, I don't want to say accommodations, but like supports because accommodation sounds like you're going out of the way. To me, it's a basic thing. If you're bringing kids out here to, to give them the opportunity of a better, you're saying a better school experience, you should give them the total opportunity. That means having a late bus. That means having whatever so they can actually play sports. But some schools don't have that. You know, that they weren't, I, when I was at Arlington High School, there was a kid who was a great baseball player who was a Metco student who, by the time baseball practice would get over, he'd have to take, like, two trains and a bus to get home because there was no late bus for him, which I could not understand and thought was a travesty. Um, so I guess I'm wondering do you, what that experience is like. Are there Metco kids that come out for the sports teams and play and have played for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I have the great privilege of having a family member who was Metco, Um, my sister's husband, and he's given me the most amazing perspective because it's firsthand and he's, you know, he grew up and has now, you know, gone on to have Mm -hmm. his own children and that sort of thing. So he's always been an amazing person for me to touch base with, um, really giving me his personal experience. In addition, my assistant coach was a Metco um, football player at Wayland. Um, So he gives me a great Mm -hmm. perspective. I have a very close relationship with the MECO director in my school as well. I've known him for years. Do you know Damon Kelton? DK. Oh, he's the yes, best. DK. Basketball guy, too. So yep. coming into, and, and also I've coached MECO kids for my whole career, which has been such a privilege because I've learned so much about their experience. Um, so I had I have eight kids in my program who are MECO at LS in my, very, in my three teams. And... We have to constantly remind people of, of where they're coming from. So, for example, a Sunday morning practice, stumble out of bed, get in your car for five minutes, you're at the school, mm-hmm. come to practice. That's not the same when you have to find a ride because mm-hmm. there is no bus. Yeah. Um, you, you, know, you have a parent who's got to get up and maybe pick up other MECO kids if we can make it work. To, to realistically find several MECO kids who could all get a ride on a Sunday morning and all get there on time is a logistical thing we have to consider. Um, and there's, there's so many. There's so many things to consider. COVID was a huge issue. And we had to constantly remind people who were making up these COVID rules they could not be the same for everyone mm-hmm. based on the c- circumstances. So. We're very sensitive to the fact that the COVID, uh, the COVID, the MECO kids during COVID was a little bit of a harder situation. Mm-hmm. And now that COVID is off of our plate, we can now at least not worry about that. And we have other things to worry about. Um, they bring so much to our program from the perspective of um, teaching us about what they have to do to get there, um, coming from communities where they play basketball you know, at community centers, they bring a different level of toughness, some of mm-hmm. them. They bring all kinds of amazing things. Um, this year coming up, um, it's very possible that the captains of my team will both be Metco kids. Um, and they are the leaders. There's unquestionably the leaders of our team. So it's going to continue to evolve for us as a program. I think we're probably one of the biggest teams in the school in mm-hmm. terms of numbers of MECO kids. So we have a lot to think about. Um, but, man, we are lucky to have them. And we have great relationships. And we do a lot of things where they'll stay overnight if we have a Friday night game and then we have a Saturday yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thing has always been really, really good for us. From, so. from what I've heard, the, com- the, the communities that students and programs like that 
have had the the best time and I want to say easy time because it's not easy for anybody no matter how great a community might treat to be that whole busing and you're kind of in two worlds and not to mention you get into the racial components but like you know the ones are where they are welcomed where they are they have friendships they're sleeping over at the night they're embraced by the community they are you know it's not just I'm there I go to school I go to sport I go home you might be doing stuff in the community just you know going to get pizza or whatever do you ever worry about you know because Sudbury which is the bigger and Lincoln too but Sudbury seems to be where like everything's kind of happening for for Lincoln Sudbury I mean very minuscule black population in between the two towns do you ever worry about kids being out profiled whatever it may be in the community and uh, do you have fears do you talk to your your players do you talk to the community as there attempts to introduce them to the community so people are gonna try and check their own biases that they might have like like what is that that like Um, yeah so we haven't we haven't really done that to be honest and I've only been you know at LS for two years and we've been so covered in COVID honestly that I feel like we've missed connections and I'll tell you one of my kids took his mask off because our last game was in, in Brockton fantastic playoff situation I mean really what an mm. amazing environment to play in there must have been yeah. 700 people oh, there pack it was they... awesome yeah. and what a fantastic game like I can break this game down to you in the absolute the last minute of the game it was a tie game three critical errors by us which are so ridiculous but you can see them on film so perfectly they're so unbelievable but anyway what a great game and I lost my train of thought because <laughs> um, I just got so caught up in Brockton. Um, oh, I was going to say, we finally took our masks off. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time I have coached these kids without a mask, without a mask on. on. So yeah. it was unbelievable. And one of my kids took a mask off and he had a mustache. I was like, I can't believe that. I had no idea. <laughs> so that's what you look like. <laughs> but like, that's, that's how funny it is. I mean, yeah. I'd never seen his face. Yeah. And, you know, and I'd never coach with a mask. And I have a loud voice, so it's yeah. like I can coach with a mask on. Mm-hmm. But, man, what a great game for all of us that's to have cool. no masks. We were so free. So I feel like – I know that doesn't really answer your question, but, no, I, but I feel like now we're going to, you know, as a community of basketball players, um, now we're going to be able to face some other things, more, more team-building stuff that we weren't able to face and, and do collectively. Um, but I have just the most amazing group of boys that are so open and so generous with sharing kind of their sort of life experiences with each other um, that I think some of those things are going to undoubtedly sort of show their face and no pun intended, show your face, but <laughs> sort of come to with with our group. Um, and I think, and I'm really looking forward to it, but I think that I'll need to bring in people that are just better qualified to initiate these, including DK, because he comes down to our practices yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he's so great. He is. And the boys go up there into his office and there's like, there's a lot going on. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that I've learned, even though, you know, I grew up in a city, I grew up surrounded by black and brown people. There were more than white people in my in my high school, but it wasn't until really uh, being married with my wife, I've had to learn that with stuff like this, no matter how much you think you know, you don't ever really truly mm. get it. And what I've had to work on is really actively listening, like asking questions and then really listening to her response on things and trying to process that was 
was a big skill for me in, in, in getting more empathetic and more understanding of, of the experience. It's the that's best a, part of communication, yeah, right? That's, Listening. that's the best thing. And yeah. just, just to touch upon that, from a listening perspective, mental health, huge, massive issue amongst our yeah. young people. So, shockingly, high school age boys. Um, the number of boys who came to me and I had to listen and really hear what they were saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were suffering, and I think that's another thing, like collectively as high school coaches and teachers, yes. we cannot ignore the fact that the last two years has had a really significant impact um, on boys and girls. Yeah. Sometimes boys get overlooked because we think girls you know, have these relationships and all these kinds of things. What I heard from the boys in just listening was that they suffered. Yeah. You know, so I hope that's another thing that like as as a sort of community of people, we start to really listen to some of the stuff that kids have gone through, you know, over the last two years. Well, it's been great having you here. Um, should I say Coach Linda Martin? No, I'm going to say Linda Martindale, coach, mentor and mother. OK, fair enough. Thanks for having and me. Friend. It, was fun. it was fun. It was really fun. It was really fun. Thank you so much for, uh, Thank you. for joining us. Yeah, it was great.